The seventh commandment is found in verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now, just a reminder that these are ten commandments. These are not ten suggestions. This is not God's counseling session. These are God's principles for wise living that never change, whether it's 2000 B.C. or 1993 A.D. It's the same principle. The first part of the commandments we remember talk about our relationship to God. The second part deals with our relationship to human beings. We remember last week the sixth commandment talks about the sanctity of life. Life is holy. Life is a gift of God. The next commandment, the one we deal with this morning, speaks of the sanctity of marriage. We have the sanctity of life, and then we have the sanctity of marriage. Now that's only logical, isn't it? Because no sooner did God create life when He created Adam in the garden that He then created Eve and brought the woman to the man and they became one flesh. God instituted marriage before He instituted government or anything else. He created a man and a woman to be together. Now God created Adam in the garden. And Adam had it made. Let's face it. What a job, right? Being in the Garden of Eden, naming animals all day long. No taxes, no smog, no traffic, no house payments. He didn't have to pay monthly on the garden. It was God's gift. He had the kind of a life that people dream for. They want to retire in later on. Yet with all of the beauty that he had around him, with all of the animals that he had to name, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. And I can just hear Adam, as soon as God said that, saying, Amen. And so God created a woman. The first relationship. Now, imagine what it was like for Adam. There he is in the garden. God says, Adam, it's not good that you should be alone. So I've got a little surprise for you. I want you to take a nap. When you wake up, I'm going to show you something you've never seen before. So the Bible says that Adam fell into a sleep that God caused him to fall into and God took part of the rib or the side, literally, of Adam, fashioned a woman and brought the woman unto the man. Wake up, Adam. Here's the surprise. As soon as Adam saw Eve, he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That doesn't sound too romantic to a lot of gals. But there is an air of excitement in the original. In fact, the Living Bible translates it that when God brought Eve to Adam, she said, he said, this is it. I think that captures what he felt like. I, if you were to put it in modern vernacular, you'd probably be, wow, right on. He was excited because this woman that was brought to the man, though taken from man, though having some of the same properties, was very different from Adam. She was soft, smooth, tender, curved, beautiful. And I think Adam liked the differences. There's an old legend that says as soon as Eve was created and God brought the woman to the man that Adam went over to God and had a little conversation. He said, God, um, thanks for this gift, but why did you make her so soft and so beautiful? God said, Adam, I made her soft and beautiful that you would love her, my son said, I got that part, God, but why did you make her so stupid? 
And it is said that God retorted immediately, that she might love you, my son. And we know that's not true. But God brought the woman to the man, and that has become the pattern of a relationship ever since that time. That men and women are attracted to each other and become one flesh. You know, it amazes lots of people when they find out that God is the one who invented sex. Some people think that God is some kind of a prude. God is very pro-sex. It was His idea. It wasn't man's idea. It was God's idea from the beginning. And God gave it as a gift to men and women, knowing that they would be attracted to the differences in each other, not only for procreation, but also for pleasure. There's a whole book of the Bible that's devoted to this, the Song of Solomon. A lot of people can't read it without blushing. It is very intimate. It speaks about the intimate love, the romantic and erotic love that a husband and a wife share with each other. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says, marriage is honorable above all and the bed is undefiled. It's God's idea. But there's a problem. And the problem does not lie with God but with man. Man was created in the image of God. That image has become marred by sin. And now it seems that everything that man gets his hands on, he ruins. God creates life and man murders it. God creates the heavens and the earth and people trash it. God creates sex and marriage and people abuse it, taking sex out of the context that God originally designed and it can become filthy. The sexual impulses that we have as men and women are God-given, but they must also be God-guided. That's important. I hear a lot of people say, it's just natural. Yes, it's God-given, but it must be God-guided and directed and must be used only in the context that God has designed. If not, it becomes not something beautiful, but ugly. Lately, we've planted flowers in our backyard and we brought in some potting soil, dark soil, where the sand uh, in the area was. And I'll tell you what, there's such a difference to see those flowers with that black background. That dirt, that black soil is beautiful in the garden. But if I track that black soil inside on our carpet, it ceases to be beautiful because it's out of its element. Or you might look at it sort of like a fire. You put fire in a fireplace, it'll warm you, it will delight you. Take it out of the hearth and it will destroy you. It can become an uncontrollable thing that doesn't bring relationships together but can actually destroy the relationship. So God says, as not a suggestion but a commandment, you shall not commit adultery. I've heard people say, but that sounds so negative. No, it's very positive. If you believe in the sanctity of marriage. If you don't believe in the sanctity of marriage, everything in life to you sounds negative. If you believe in the sanctity of marriage, this is a very positive command given for your betterment. Example, you walk down a hallway, you see a sign that says, Caution, do not enter. Now at first you might think, why? Anytime a sign says, do not enter, I want to find out what's inside. That's such a negative sign. No, read further. 
Caution, do not enter. Explosives. That negative command is actually a positive command so that you don't blow to smithereens. It was given for your good. As we look at this commandment this morning, I'd like to remark on four things concerning adultery. Number one, it is fashionable socially. That's right. It's fashionable socially. Adultery, you might say, is a sin that has come of age. It's popular. It's no longer as taboo as it once was. It's spoken about on many, many fronts, and especially in the media. There was a song that was put out in the 60s, and it's sort of become the theme, I think, of this generation. It says, if you can't be with the one you love, then love the one you're with. I've always hated that song. I thought it was so stupid. But that sort of characterizes the thinking, the new morality of this generation. Now, admittedly, there is a rekindling in this country for old family values. Almost every researcher that I have read lately says that there's this push to rekindle and recapture the family values that this country has lost. But the family is defined in different terms. Let's face it. These are not the days of June and Ward Cleaver anymore or Ozzie and Harriet any longer. The 90s generation is completely different. And there is a breakup of marriage. And though God intended it to be something that is permanent and long-lasting in many areas, it's a 90-day contract. It's an option. And marriages break up many times because of adultery. In fact, in a recent poll conducted among people who had been divorced, one out of nine said infidelity was the root cause for their marriage breakup. There's a book that I've referred to in this last year often. I've read it shockingly. It's called The Day America Told the Truth. The reason I quote it, number one, is it's not written by Christians. It doesn't have a slant on it. It's written by secular observers. And number two, I quote it because it was a poll that was done to get at the absolute core truth among Americans. It's, it was a poll that was conducted anonymously. You don't sign your name to it. It was given in such a way that you could divulge all of the truth, all of what you think, without anyone else knowing. And in the poll, they said in the book, almost one-third of all married Americans have had or are now having an affair. This is not a number from Hollywood or New York. It's the national average for adultery. Today, the majority of Americans, 62%, think there's nothing morally wrong with the affairs they're having. Once again, we hear the rationalization from them that everyone is doing it. I wish I could say that this is a problem that is outside the Christian church. But I've pastored too long to say that. I've watched families break up. I've seen marriages degenerate because of the lack of commitment and the looseness morally among men and women. Time magazine, back in March of this year, reported among those who label themselves very religious, 31% have had an affair. If you look to Christian magazines, Christianity Today, a very famous circulating Christian magazine, took a poll of a thousand people at random, sampling. And after conducting the poll and asking the questions, 
They said 23% of the 1,000 people selected at random, 23% among the Christian community, admitted committing adultery. 45% admitted, almost 50%, 45% admitted that they acted inappropriately with someone other than their spouse. One of the reasons for this, though I don't always like to blame the media, they're just so blamable. They really are. They're very blamable. Now, yes, they're reflecting what a lot of people in society are looking for, but the media pushes this stuff out ad infinitum. I mean, it's consistent. It's this constant sewage flow of immorality. Our society is obsessed with it. Josh McDowell points out that the media is to blame principally because 81% of all sexual activity or implied sexual activity on television, is outside of marriage, 81%. And that gives a strong message, especially to young people. The Journal of Communications tells us that TV portrays six times more extramarital sex than marital sex, and that 94% of sexual encounters on soap operas are between people who are not married. The other night... I was attending a meeting in California, and uh, I got back to the hotel room, turned on the television, and there was these weird talk shows. I tell you, they come up with the strangest themes. They think of the oddest kind of people to get for these things. But on this one talk show, they had three teenage boys who talked about their sex lives, and one admitted to having 67 separate sexual encounters with girls. And the audience was shaking their heads, and he said, I'm just looking for the right one. You know what? He'll never find her. And if he ever finds the right one, she had to dump him pretty quick. Now, on the other hand, I saw another talk show where somebody who was pretty famous in the movie industry uh, was being interviewed, and they asked him about his love life, and he said, "Uh, in your opinion, what makes a good lover? And his answer was very refreshing. He said, I'll tell you what makes a good lover. A man who can satisfy one woman for a lifetime. And then he said, any dog can go from bed to bed. Boy, that's insightful, isn't it? Any dog can go from bed to bed. Now, adultery is nothing new. It's been on for a long time, but it happens to be very fashionable and very popular these days than ever before. Things like marriage, sexual fidelity, moral purity are scoffed at by this generation. I have had the extreme privilege of standing on this stage marrying two separate couples who decided to be so pure that they wouldn't even kiss each other before I pronounced them husband and wife. In their entire dating relationship, they said, we will not even kiss each other because we know that even that can incite passions and we don't want to be in a temptable position. You could have, when I explained that at the weddings, an audible gasp went up. Because... Even people in the church couldn't believe that people could be that pure in the 1990s. We have gone so far from the biblical standard. It's a serious epidemic, and it is a symptom of the spiritual malaise that's in this country. Because of that, I think it's appropriate to remember the warning that Paul gave to the Corinthian church who were also in an area, in a part of the world, that was very loose sexually. He warned these believers by saying, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now what he's saying is those who are habitually, continually practicing that as a lifestyle, if they're doing that as a lifestyle, it shows they've never come into contact with the changing grace of Christ and they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, and such were some of you. He didn't say, and such are some of you. Such were, past tense. So although it's very popular, although it's very fashionable, and although at one time you may have been caught up in it, it's past tense experience when you're a child of God. The Apostle Paul further warns in Ephesians, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these things are improper for God's holy people. It is fashionable socially. But we don't do what's fashionable socially, do we? Second, it's formed inwardly. It's not something that begins on the outside, it begins on the inside. It's like murder. Murder begins with the sinful anger of the heart we discovered a couple weeks ago. So it is with adultery. It's formed inwardly. In fact, in verse 14, the word commit, adultery, is the word in Hebrew, na'af. Na'af. It can describe a single act, but it is in the Hebrew imperfect tense which suggests the beginning of a process before it's completed. The beginning of a process before it's completed. That was exactly Jesus' whole point. In the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon where everybody dropped their jaw at the sayings of Christ because they'd never heard such radical teaching, he would say things like, you have heard that it has been said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you hate your brother and you're angry without a cause, you're a murderer. He went on to say, you have heard that it has been said. You shall not commit adultery, quoting this commandment. But I say unto you that anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now all the men started shaking about that time. Because they realized that the law speaks about the attitude of the heart, not just the action of the body. And it's not just the outward action of adultery, but it's that inward lusting after a woman that Jesus says a person can be guilty of committing adultery. Let's think about that for a minute. Looking to lust. That's where it begins inwardly. The Greek word is pros, ta, epi, thumesai, which means toward lusting. The word is important. It comes from the word heat, thumos, thermos. It speaks about boiling passions. The idea is when I look at someone to inflame my passion, to fuel my hormones, and I'm looking, not because I can't help it, but I'm looking that I might lust, that's when it becomes adulterous sin, according to Jesus Christ. Now, there are people who, uh, like Dr. Ruth, the famous sex quote-unquote expert, says the fantasies aren't bad. She goes, it's only in the mind. If you keep it confined to the mind, it's okay. No, it's not okay. What goes on in the mind is very important. 
That's where it all begins. That's where the battle is fought within the mind. And those fantasies, if fueled especially for a period of time, can turn into reality. I don't know why these judges can't look at just the facts of the cases of the people involved in pornography and see how they play that out in reality in child abuse and rape. They can't figure that out. What goes on in the mind is very, very important. Now, Jesus is not speaking about unexpected exposure. Guys, there's times you're driving down the street and you see a billboard. You didn't know they wasn't there last week. All of a sudden it's there this week. You can't help that. You might be walking down the street or going somewhere and there might be a woman who's scantily dressed. She's probably doing it on purpose because she wants the attention. You can't help her coming into your view, but you can turn away. Do you? That's the issue. It's not the first look. It's not the... It's the... Whoa! You see, it's what your mind does with that afterwards. It's, it's the imagining... The imagining of the seduction. It's the mental undressing. It's the in your mind placing you and that other person together. You are looking epithumesi to inflame the passion of lust. There's a story in the Old Testament of a man who failed in this area. His name was King David. A man after God's own heart. A man who walked with God. A man who had his eyes on God. But one night he was out just taking a walk on his balcony in Jerusalem. It was a nice evening. He was enjoying the stars, enjoying the view. And another view came into his sight. Remember her name? Bathsheba. And she was taking a bath. She was doing it publicly outside or in some kind of a way where King David could see her. David couldn't help what he saw at first, but David could help what he did with that sight. And what did David do with that sight? He thought, wow, I'm the king. Everybody's at battle. It's the spring of the year. It's evening. And he called for her and had her brought to his house. And he committed adultery with her, broke the marriage bond that he had with his wife and she had with her husband. Both were guilty. She was pregnant and she went out and murdered Uriah the Hittite, her husband, to try to cover up that sin. David, when he saw Bathsheba, could have changed channels. He should have said, I'm going inside. I'm going to have a word of prayer with my wife. Guaranteed, that would have simmered down a lot of things. But he didn't change channels. He looked that he might lust. And that's where it became sinful. There's an old saying that says, you can't stop a bird from flying around your head, but you can stop a bird from building a nest in your hair. You cannot stop the initial temptation. But you and I can stop what we do with that temptation, yielding to it or not yielding to it. Adultery, adultery is a process that begins in the heart. It begins in secret. It starts with the thoughts. And there's an old, actually it's not that old, it's pretty modern saying that says, if you sow a thought, you will reap an action. If you sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. And if you sow a character long enough, you'll reap a destiny. And there's a lot of people who sow thoughts in the wrong direction, in the wrong movies, in the wrong kind of magazines. Pretty soon it's a habit. It's a stronghold. It's a satanic stronghold. And eventually they can reap a character and a destiny. Job in the Old Testament. The man who suffered outwardly also knew what it was like to guard the heart. Because though he was aging, though he had his own children, he also knew that 
the heart and the eyes could look at a young woman and lust after her. And he said in his book, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? It's what it takes, man, to make a covenant with our eyes. Hey, eyes, I made a deal with you, all right? We're not going to do that. We're not going to look that way anymore. I know that the Sermon on the Mount is directed toward men, but this commandment applies equally to women. And I think especially to women who would incite men to lust. Listen to what A.W. Pink said in his commentary. He said, If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with a desire to be looked and lusted after are not less but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of the great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. Women, be careful what you wear. Be careful what kind of stuff you will put on and the reason for which you do. Because men can become excited by what you wear or what you refuse to wear. So, adultery is fashionable socially. It's formed inwardly. And the third thing I'd like to remark on that's very important to us is that it is fatal relationally. It does great damage. Hollywood is a liar. You know it would be good when you see movies to say, Liar! Say it outwardly so your children hear it. Because they're giving you a pack of lies. They like to portray adultery and sexual immorality as something that's wonderful to be engaged in for fun. It's a bunch of lies. They talk about free love. It's not free. You pay for it. It'll cost you the rest of your life. They talk about safe sex now. Let me tell you something. A lot of sex is not safe. It's dangerous. Everybody gets hurt. Everybody gets scarred. Marriages break up. Divorces occur because of it. It's not safe. It's absolutely dangerous and lethal outside of the bounds of marriage as God intended. Again, God's not a prude. He invented sex. He invented it to be pleasurable. But it can also be devastating. It's fatal relationally. It can injure you. You can injure yourself because of it. Solomon in Proverbs tells us, a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Think about it. It can destroy you physically. There's so many venereal and sexually transmitted diseases, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and of course AIDS. It can destroy a person being promiscuous. It can destroy you emotionally. There's often a rationalization that occurs in an affair. The rationalization is, I've had an affair with this person. Things aren't working out at home. I can dump my spouse, marry this new one, and everything will be hunky-dory. Lies. You will carry the same problems into your marriage that you had in the first marriage. In fact, since the new marriage is built on deception, your chances for failure go up. Think about it. Would you trust someone who's just spent months deceiving his or her spouse? You're going to trust that person for life when they've shown a pattern of deception? Robert Count says, The second and third marriages fail at even a higher rate than first marriages, and failure rate will continue to rise at an unprecedented rate if current trends continue. 
Not only does it injure yourself, but it injures your family. Adultery does. Injures your spouse, your mate, and also your children. You see, Paul the Apostle spoke about sexual immorality, that there is a oneness that occurs in marriage, a bond when two people come together in a marriage that adultery violates. Because anytime you lie sexually with another person, you form another bond emotionally with that other person. A bond is formed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two shall become one flesh. And that's the reason, by the way, that Jesus gave these words in Matthew chapter 5. He said, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. He said that there's only one cause and one alone to divorce, and that is sexual immorality. And that's because when a person commits sexual immorality, there's a defilement of the sacred bond of marriage that Jesus gave permission that a divorce could occur. By the way, it's more than just sex. It's as much the pain when a person realizes, I've been deceived for months by this person who had an affair, my husband or wife. They've lied to me. They've cheated me. They've deceived me. That pain upon realization just rips apart trust and integrity in a relationship. So you can injure yourself. You can injure your spouse. You can injure your children. That's right. Parents who have been promiscuous, who have committed adultery, should not be surprised if their children do the same. It's what they've seen. It's what they've heard about. You know, adults are always talking about the promiscuity of these young people. What about the adults who are to set the example of purity in marriage? Think of David, king of Israel. Sinned, committed adultery, murdered her husband. Was he forgiven? You betcha. Nathan said, you're forgiven, David. You've confessed your sins. You're forgiven. But there were consequences that he paid. He sought, reaped out in his own family life. For we read in a few chapters later that Amnon, his son, commits incest with his half-sister Tamar, rapes her. And then Absalom, his other son, in revenge, murders the other guy. So we have sexual immorality and murder in the family of David, passed on from generation to generation. Let's take it a step further. If you're sexually promiscuous, let's say you contract some kind of virus like the AIDS virus, you come home, give it to your wife or your husband, Potentially, both of you could die leaving your children as orphans. That's why you should count the cost. It's a very heavy cost. It's not free. It's not safe. It's dangerous. Besides that, you can injure other people. Did you know that if you're a Christian and you're involved in sexual immorality, everybody else in the church hurts? If one member of the body suffers, what did Paul say? Everybody else suffers. One obedient Christian strengthens the church. One disobedient Christian can weaken the whole body of Christ. And it hinders other people from coming to Christ. Again, David, the example we've been using a lot this morning. When he was confronted by Nathan the prophet for his sin of adultery, and David confessed it, and he said that he would repent, Nathan said, you're forgiven. Nevertheless, David, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. 
That is, the nations around you who are not Jewish, who don't have the same relationship that you have with God, are going to look at you and say, oh, this guy's been talking about the God of Israel. See, he just blew his whole testimony. To go around witnessing, saying, God is faithful. Oh, yes, I have faith in God, but you've been unfaithful to your spouse. Shatters your witness. See, it's destructive on every front, isn't it? Everybody gets hurt. Let's take it a step further. It also injures God, and that's the most important. When David sinned, he wrote a psalm, Psalm 51. And he said, Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned and committed this great iniquity in thy sight. Yes, David injured himself, he injured his wife, he injured Bathsheba and Uriah and many others, but principally, above all that, he saw that he injured the heart of God. That's why Joseph, a great man of spiritual integrity and physical purity in the Old Testament, remember when he worked for Potiphar? And Potiphar's wife was really loose because Potsy didn't pay much attention to her. And Joseph was young and virile and a real leader, and she saw that, and so she grabbed him, grabbed his clothes and said, Have sex with me. Lie with me. Joseph said, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Sin against God. Adultery is big business in this country. It's the theme of entertainment. But our country is reaping the price socially. It's fashionable socially. It's formed inwardly. It's fatal relationally. But fourth and finally, it's forgivable ultimately. That needs to be said. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin, folks. Some of you right now have sweaty palms, perhaps, as we're talking about this issue. You may not have admitted it to any people. Maybe just a few know about it. Maybe no one knows that perhaps you have broken a marriage bond and violated it by sexual immorality. But because it's sin, it's forgivable. Will there be consequences? Oh, yeah, but it is absolutely forgivable. I love the story of Jesus, our Lord, in John chapter 8. A woman who was caught in adultery was brought to Jesus. Remember the story? It's an interesting story because these leaders bring this woman to Jesus and they say, this woman was caught in the very act. While they were in bed, the leaders found her in the very act of adultery. Of course, the first question would be, uh, if she was in the act of adultery, where's the guy? Why didn't you bring him too to be stoned to death? And they said, our law commands that she be stoned. And so it says that Jesus didn't say anything. He just stooped over and started writing with his finger in the sand. And he said, whoever is without sin, then, here, cast the first stone, aim well. If you're without sin, go for it. And he just kept writing. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. Perhaps he was writing each of these leaders' names in the sand and the secret sin they thought no one knew about. He just wrote it down. <laughs> And one looked at it and went, whoa, put the rock down. Another go, ooh, put the rock down, and they all left. Finally, everybody was gone. Jesus turned to the woman. He said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, sir, I have none. And those beautiful words from the lips of Jesus, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Both a word of forgiveness and a challenge. I forgive you. I can see that you're sorry for this. But go and sin no more. 
The church of Corinth we mentioned a few minutes ago was a church that started getting a little bit loose because of the morals or the lack of morals around it. Did you know that there was an instance in the early church of Corinth where there was a young man sleeping with a woman, a relative, perhaps a mother. It was an incestuous relationship. And the guy was still coming to church. He was living in immoral sexuality and the church knew about it and tolerated it. And Paul wrote him a letter, 1 Corinthians, and he said, put that person out of the fellowship. Kick him out of the church. Purge out the old leaven because a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Don't tolerate it. If a person claims to walk with God as a Christian but openly lives sexually immoral, put him out. That's what Paul said. So they did. But then he wrote a second letter. And by this time, the man had genuinely repented. He was sorry for his sin. Some time had elapsed. He saw what he had done. And a restoration was about to take place. And so Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, Now instead, you ought to forgive and you ought to comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. If you have committed adultery, you need to know that God's grace is bigger than your sin. It is. Paul the Apostle said, Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Or a better translation would be, when sin reaches the high water mark on the dam, God's love and grace floods over it. If you'll come to Him and repent and ask for His forgiveness, it is absolutely forgivable. Listen, I've seen broken marriages torn up by adultery. I remember the time where a divorce took place. He had committed adultery. After a period of time, after some years, trust was restored and I got to perform the wedding to marry them back to each other after forgiveness. They recognized God forgave them. They recognized that they would forgive each other and they were brought back together. Now, as we come to a close in this message, I want to give some tips for prevention. One thing to talk about adultery, but it's another thing to talk about preventative measures. Ways to not do it. Some tools that can help us in preventing adultery. Number one, agree with God. That's right. Agree with what God says about marriage and what God says about divorce. That marriage is to be a permanent, not a 90-day option, a permanent thing until death do you part, that you will build one another up, that it's a holy institution. Number two, agree with what God says about divorce. Actually, it's under number one. You agree with what God says about divorce, that it's sinful, that it devastates that it can ruin relationships. It hinders your relationship with God. And if you've been involved in it, confess that. Confess your sin to God. That's where it always begins, before the throne of God, doesn't it? To receive grace to help in time of need. Confess. Did you know the word confess, hamalageo, means to agree with? I agree with God. I agree that God says this sin is wrong. I agree that I've committed it. Lord, forgive me. Second tip, date your mate. If you're married, and I'm looking on the faces of many who are married, don't let dating end after she says, I do. Many people lose their spark in marriage, and they need lighter fluid poured on their lives, spiritually, <laughs> romantically. They need to keep it alive. Marriages do not collapse overnight. They erode slowly by lack of attention, lack of affirmation, lack of communication. Things like, honey, you're beautiful. I love you. Just little tender things. You might say, I've said that before. Just keep saying them. 
The first five minutes of the day are so important. Not, screwed over, you're hogging the bed. (laughs) Gained a lot of weight. (laughs) Good morning, honey, I love you today. This morning as I got up early for bed, of course my wife's still asleep, face down in the pillow. I got up for service, uh, early service, and she'll come to the second or the third usually. And I just kissed her on the cheek and said, Happy anniversary. Now she was in a sleep, but she heard that. And she responded by going, Hmm. <laughs> Take nights out with each other. If you've got children, it's busy, it's hard to juggle that around. Take a date once a week. It doesn't have to be extravagant, it doesn't have to be expensive. It could be very, just so you're together. Date your mate. In that same category, what are you doing to keep attracting your mate to yourself? Isn't it funny that we want to look really great when we go out, but not when we come in with our mates? Oh, somebody knocks at the door, a total stranger. I've got to fix myself. Lipstick. Tie up. Okay. And then when they're gone, it's like, well, it's just you again. No big deal. I'm not saying you have to look, wear a tuxedo or a formal and look like Ward Cleaver or June Cleaver. But be presentable and attractive to your mate. Third tip, and this gets down to the nitty-gritty. Satisfy each other's needs. Satisfy each other's needs. Not just being committed to satisfy the emotional, romantic needs, but also sexual needs. You know, I love the Bible. It's so practical. It doesn't say... Don't mention that word. Don't talk about it. talks very plainly and openly about it. And Paul in 1 Corinthians says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. You get that? You don't deprive each other sexually unless you consent together, and it is for a specific time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together again, listen carefully, so that Satan does not tempt you. It's a very practical reason that Paul gave that. It's much like what Solomon said to his son in the book of Proverbs. He says, My son, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. The idea is, look, son, daughter, Make sure that you meet your spouse's sexual needs so completely that they won't look anywhere else. That they won't look anywhere else. That's very vital, that you understand what each other needs sexually and you communicate that openly. Fourthly, avoid relationships that tempt you. Avoid relationships that tempt you. There are some people that just attract you more than others and you know who they are. There's a certain person, he or she has some feature, some beauty, some personality, and boy, you're just, there's, you're attracted to that person. Even though you're married, you know who they are. Avoid those relationships. Hasta la vista, baby. (laughs) Really, be careful. Don't flirt. Because you flirt and your mind starts taking it, you start thinking, you start imagining, and pretty soon, adultery can happen. 
Whether you like it or not, sex, when it happens, creates a relationship between a man and a woman that must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. So nurture your wife. Nurture the relationship with your husband so that you just grow more and more in love with each other. And temptation to adultery is not something that you even have to worry about. There's a theologian by the name of Helmut Thielecki. You can tell he's German. In one of his writings, he said, I once knew a very old couple who radiated tremendous happiness, the wife especially, who was almost unable to move because of old age and illness, and in whose kind old face the joys and suffering of many years had etched a hundred lines. She was filled with such gratitude for life that I was touched to the quick. Involuntarily, I asked myself, what could possibly be the source of this kindly person's radiance? In every other respect, they were common people, but their room indicated only the most modest comfort. But suddenly, I knew where it all came from, for I saw those two speaking to each other and their eyes hanging upon each other. And all at once it became clear to me that this woman was dearly loved. It was not because she was a cheerful and pleasant person that she was loved by her husband all those years. It was the other way around. Because she was so loved, she became the person that I saw before me. We have the potential, husbands and wives, to mold our spouses with either lots of love and attention and affirmation or cold-heartedness, lack of attention, cutting remarks, and we will make them into what they are. Father, we know that we live in a society that makes adultery very popular and fashionable. We're aware now this morning that what happens in the heart is of utmost importance because it's that which can eventually be lived out in action. We see that adultery is absolutely destructive and injurious to relationships, to ourselves, to our standing with you. And we thank you for your love and forgiveness that because it is sin, you can forgive it. And we pray that you would, as people acknowledge sin today. But more than that, Father... There are many who haven't. And we pray, Lord, that we might take to heart these preventative measures to keep the fire burning brightly, the fire of commitment. For we know that in many, many ways, sexual satisfaction between husband and wife is often a barometer of their relationship as a whole. It tells a lot. Lord, bring husbands and wives together in this particular congregation. We pray, Lord, that these things would be once named among us, but not presently named among us. That we would be pure. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand? And before you leave and before we sing, it would be great if there's somebody in your neighborhood...